This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Elle Gibbs. Elle is a writer, disability advocate and editor of bluntshovels.au. Elle joined me to talk about the Disability Royal Commission's final report, their findings after extensive hearings detailing the violence, abuse and neglect of disabled people, and what should happen next. Elle also addresses the ongoing COVID-19 impacts on disabled and chronically ill people in Australia. At the moment, the unmitigated spread of COVID-19 in the community is excluding people with a disability and a chronic illness from participating fully in society and from accessing healthcare safely. On a very dreary day here, but what is not dreary is my next guest. She is phenomenal. She writes and she advocates She has a huge amount of expertise for us to draw on, and I've been wanting to speak with her for many, many years. I'm talking about Elle Gibbs, who is a writer, a disability advocate, and an editor. She edits bluntshovels.au, which is her website where she writes on a whole range of matters relating to disability in particular. And Elle is joining me to talk about a couple of topics that are very important to federal politics and policy in Australia and also people with a disability. We have seen over a number of years now the Disability Royal Commission hosting a range of hearings, both public and private. They've taken numerous submissions and they've now finally delivered their final report It's long-awaited. Of course, the the Royal Commission was long-awaited as well. And they were also dealing with a pandemic, which was to some degree disruptive, but they soldiered through. Now what we have is a very, very detailed, multi-volumed report and also equally detailed executive summary. So I'm thankful that we've got Elle Gibbs to take us through it because there's a lot in there and I'm sure she's going to know just what is most pertinent for us to know and understand. But we are going to talk about the findings from that Royal Commission and what we need to do now as a society and as a community, not just as a government, not just as NGOs, but as a whole, as a collective, to take these findings through and to implement them and to make society more inclusive and based on a social model of disability and not the medical model. And we'll get into what that means in a minute. And we're also going to be talking about the effects of the pandemic on people with a disability and those with a chronic illness, especially because the unmitigated spread of COVID-19 is directly affecting their ability to participate to engage in society, to seek medical treatment that is safe. There's a whole range of barriers that some people, especially able-bodied people, may not be aware of. And it is, I think, up to us to change the situation because the government has no sign of turning around. In fact, they're still backtracking and taking off restrictions, removing more rigorous data to the point where we really only have hospitalizations and sewage surveillance at our disposal now in terms of understanding where COVID-19 is in Australia. So with that, I welcome onto the show Al Gibbs. Al, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show and thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Thanks so much, Amy, and that was very kind of you. I have been long admiring of you and your work, and I don't want to embarrass you too much, but you are kind of famous on Twitter 
as Blanche Doubles and I've followed you for quite a while and I really appreciate your advocacy and your expertise. You've done so much work and I know that a lot of this would be volunteer as well as work work. There's a, a kind of mix there, but a lot of people, especially advocates, do do, you know, the work of educating the public out of their own time as well. So it's really great that you're taking the time to do that with us today. One thing I wanted to start off with is to kind of introduce you to those who maybe aren't familiar with your work. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you have come to be so focused on disability advocacy here in Australia? Of course. So I've been disabled for a very long time uh, and uh, became really unwell when I was about 19 and was in and out of hospital a lot during my 20s and early 30s. And uh, I was very involved in politics and the community sector, uh, but not in terms of disability. I, I thought for a very long time that my disability was, you know, a medical issue, you know, and something that uh, that was certainly encouraged by every medical professional that I was involved with who were all single-mindedly uh, focused on uh, this particular treatment will fix me for sure this time, we promise, we promise, and 15 years later, didn't work. And But during that time, I, I was, you know, engaging in the disability system as such. So I was, you know, got the disability support pension. I had disability support at home. Um, I was around and supported by a lot of disability-related systems, um, but I didn't understand that disability was a political issue. I got involved in other political and social issues at the time. Um, and I remember reading a book about the social model of disability um, and feminism, of all things, uh, mm. by Susan Wendell called The Rejected Body. And it was one of the first pieces that I'd ever read about the social model of disability. And it was like the light bulb just went on in my brain. It was like, I could be political about disability? What do you mean? This is, wasn't just my kind of personal issue. This wasn't just about, you know, my, in, my personal battles were, were really significantly connected, not just to other disabled people, but that I was part of a movement, that there was a movement and history of disabled people who had been fighting for change and doing the kind of political activism that I was involved in, you know, around, you know, refugees or around stopping wars and those kind of things, that that was the same as disability movement. And so it really was a, a, a kind of awakening for me, as you like, and, um, and I, you know, was involved in elections and worked for unions and did all sorts of that kind of stuff. But I didn't start working for and being around disability advocacy so much until, you know, I got sick yet again and was uh, extremely unwell and stuck at home and not able to do things. So, mm -hmm. of course, uh, got involved in Twitter, got involved in a bunch of, of things where I could be much more myself uh, that I couldn't be, you know, if you like, in real life, which I don't like that term, but... Um, you know, uh, I could talk about things and I got to meet a whole lot of other disabled people online and through social media that were doing the kind of activism that I was really familiar with but hadn't done it in a disability context. So I've been working in and around the disability advocacy sector now for a decade and uh, but been writing about the NDIS for 11 years and 
uh, around social issues for 15. So it's been <laughs> like a long time now. Um, but, you know, my first blog on uh, the first Blood Shovels blog was mostly shit posting about the Greens, to be honest, uh, <laughs> uh, rather than writing specifically around disability. But it certainly, um, as the NDIS came along and was developed, I was really interested in that from a policy perspective, from a uh, kind of political economy perspective and from a disability perspective of, um, and also from a movement perspective because the movement to get the NDIS was also really interesting. So um, following that sort of from 2009 onwards and then I had my first published piece about the NDIS where I called it a voucher system, which wasn't quite true, kind of true <laughs> but not quite true, uh, in 2012. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And I was really interested actually to before we get into the medical model and social model, I was reading your latest blog post on lgibbs.com.au and you were writing about lived experience. And I was fascinated by that because you show how people who have a disability or a chronic illness, they're often put up as, here, let's talk to the person with the lived experience. And then afterwards, we'll talk about the professional, we'll talk to the professional experts in the disability sector who are going to tell us how to fix the issue for the people with lived experience. And I was just like, yes, this is exactly what happens. And it's so frustrating. Um, and it's also very frustrating, you know, when you, as you point out, if you're on a government board, for example, and you're one of the only, if not the only person with a disability, having to represent the interests of people with a disability and, you know, you're not listened to. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience advocating and how that kind of element in the in that public policy space plays out, uh, you know, the lived experience versus the expert. And of course, they're not mutually exclusive, um, but, you know, they keep kind of being forced to be separate. Mm. Yeah, it's something that um, I worked for a couple of years as a consultant and often I was brought in as, you know, the lived experience person when I've got 20 years of professional experience in communications and policy development. Mm. And so uh, it always became really challenging when it was kind of like you could be one or the other. Um, but also that often in a room full of a discussion around disability, there would be me, one person with disability, sitting around the table and as I often say in government consultations particularly, but also in the private sector, if you're only talking to disabled people that look and sound like me, you're doing it wrong. And I think often it can be, you know, consulting with disabled people still is far too much of a ticker box kind of exercise rather than a real devolvement of power. And, mm. you know, that's always been what the disability movement has been calling for for a really long time. You know, the, we talk about the medical model of disability, which is around, you know, the problem with disability lies with me and the solution to disability lies with fixing me, you know. And another older model of disability that is very prevalent still is called the charity model of disability, where the nice non-disabled person will come along and fix me or support me because they feel nice rather than that I have rights to access support and to have control of that support in my own right. And so a lot of our disability sector, a lot of the consultation still operates like that. And, you know, part of my quite nerdy obsession with the NDIS has been looking through um, how it works and how power works within the NDIS. And, for example, in the, the way that the prices are set in the NDIS, which is how much people with disability get charged out of their support budgets, mm. 
people with disability don't have any say over that. So they're the ones that are paying the price, but they have no say over the setting of those prices. So that's all set by the people that are charging the prices. And that seems like a ridiculous idea that people with disability who are paying the prices out of their own budgets get no say over the cost of that. So it really, this is one of the examples where we bake in the marginalisation of people with disability from having any real power over the systems and structures in our lives. And it's from everything from the, the sort of support budgets through the NDIS to government decisions. I mean, I sit on various government and committees, formal and informal, and I sit in one where, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm the only disabled person in the room and it is a very significant group of people talking about a significant aspect of the NDIS. And I keep saying, yeah, it's, it's two of us. Why, mm. why, why is there only two of us in the room? Like, this feels like... Uh, not okay, and we keep and uh, yeah, we keep. What worries me is that 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 means that the decisions that are made are not going to be in our best interests. And so, um, my frustrations came out of a particular uh, government COVID communications working group. That's where that piece came from. Yeah, uh, I I sense it, and I can relate <laughs> to it in a way. <laughs> yeah, so. And I think lots of, um, it is one of the key questions that we are going to have to grapple with in the next mm. few years around uh, ceding power and for non-disabled people to really cede power. And that's what we're talking about, about some of the change that has to happen is only going to happen around that. And I think we need to talk more about power in the disability movement. Um, disabled people talk about it, but non-disabled people don't like talking about that. No, no. And... Yeah, no, I have seen that dynamic up front, you know, of like the well-meaning but not really understanding that you need to, as you say, give up a certain amount of control and enable other voices to be heard, the ones that are directly affected and to, you know, value their opinion as being not just lived experience but coming from a place of expertise. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about the Royal Commission because I know that this is another thing that people in the disability space have been advocating for for a very long time and the report sets it out, you know, very clearly at the start. I'm talking about the executive summary, not the 12 volumes and 5,000 or more pages of uh, writing, which I admit I have not read the entire 12 volumes. Um, you probably have, Al, I don't know, you can tell us <laughs> in a minute, but I was really impressed at least that they took us through the history of, you know, where we got to in terms of the Disability Royal Commission. Um, the fact that, you know, we had that medical model, but in fact the social model is the model that we should be following and approaching inclusion from and what inclusion means um, when it comes to disability. So, you know, the report takes us through that in, you know, very plain language, but it also tells us that, it was set up in April 2019 and, of course, it's been going on since then. So we've finally got this final report that's come out at the end of September. And I wonder, first of all, could you tell us in your opinion and in your expertise and mind, do you feel that the way that the Disability Royal Commission has been run, which they say was, you know, trauma-informed and you know, was seeking to be deliberately as inclusive as possible to cast the net very wide. Do you feel that the way that it has been run um, was what 
the disability community had expected and was looking for? In part, I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, I think that COVID had an enormous impact on the Royal Commission's capacity to go to places and do things in the way that they had planned. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to acknowledge how difficult that was in lots of ways and that they really had to rejig the entire way that the Royal Commission was planned to work, including all of their public hearings, all of that, and set up different systems, um, all of the private sessions, all of the things that they had to do, all had to move online in a way that was uh, very different. Um, you know, one of the public hearings that they ended up having once things started to open up again, ended up having to shut, uh, like, stop halfway through because all of the tech team got COVID and they couldn't broadcast it anymore. Like it's those yeah. kind of events that happened that were really challenging for the Royal Commission. So I do want to acknowledge that. But I, I do have concerns about whether they were able to do the kinds of things that we talked about when the, the campaign for the Royal Commission was run. So um, just to take you all back a little bit, there was a big... Um, I'm not sure if people remember, there was a Four Corners program in 2014 that looked at horrific abuse uh, in Urala um, service, uh, disability service. And uh, from that, there was a, a Senate inquiry that ran through the whole of 2015. And the primary recommendation from that Senate inquiry was for a Royal Commission. And the disability community campaigned from then onwards uh, until we got that uh, Royal Commission at the beginning of 2019. Um, and one of the things that we kept talking about was that we wanted the Royal Commission to be able to shine a light on, in the places that, you know, nobody could see. And that means inside group homes, inside prisons, inside forensic detention centres, inside all of the places that we can't get to as advocates and that we know people with disability are being hurt. Um, and they got into some of those places, um, but nowhere near in a comprehensive kind of way that we were hoping. And I suspect that the split decision around group homes, for example, as part of the recommendations, is part of that. Mm. Um, the commissioners visited one group home, just one. Really? And Yeah. And as far as I know, they may have done more, but as far as I know, they've went to one. Um, they heard lots of evidence from both public hearings, private sessions and submissions about what's happening there. But I think because they couldn't get in the doors, um, yeah, that didn't happen. I'm really disappointed there's been not a single, as far as I know, police referral from the Royal Commission. I find that hard wow. to believe mm. that of the thousands and thousands of stories that people with disability and their families told that no one was referred to the police that there was no investigative work. Um, and I keep reading parts of the, and I have not read all the reports, <laughs> um, but I've, you know, as I read, I keep reading where they say, oh, we couldn't get this information, we couldn't get that. And I'm like, but you have the fancy Royal Commission powers that yeah. we all talked about so much. Like, why couldn't you get that? And why didn't you try harder? And, it, you know, like I really, I worry that some of the Royal, Royal Commission recommendations did pull their punches a bit because they didn't go in hard enough. And, look, maybe I'm just being too harsh. Uh, I am totally open to that accusation. But I am I am concerned uh, about that. But I'll keep reading mm. and I'll keep uh, wading through that. Um, but I know lots of people – I gave evidence to the Royal Commission in 2020 um, and about 
the pandemic and I know lots of people who gave evidence. I know lots of people uh, with intellectual disability got to give evidence in lots of different ways and that that was really, really important. Um, and there were, um, you know, in terms of the public hearings, one of the interesting parts uh, at the final ceremonial hearing was that um, people with disability had been around a, th a third or a quarter of the witnesses at public hearings, um, which feels slim to me. Um, and I'm just not clear how many people with disability um, gave evidence uh, in private sessions either. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I do worry about that. I know COVID had a big impact, but I do uh, remain concerned around the lack of engagement with the Royal Commission throughout the life of it, uh, from the media and civil society more broadly, um, and perhaps that let them off the hook a bit. I don't know. Yeah, no, I am. Um, I really appreciate your observations in that regard because it it's important given that so many people have been invested in this happening for so long, and you can only really do it once you know, every so often. It, this isn't a chance to be repeated in the near future, um, certainly not to the same degree and on covering the same breadth of terms of reference that this Royal Commission had. Uh, at, in the executive summary, it talks about some of the engagement they did. Um, so I thought I'd read it out for those listening to get a sense of it because uh, we've just kind of referenced their, you know, private hearings, public hearings, et cetera. Um, according to them in their volume two, they say they took evidence at 32 public hearings from 837 witnesses. Out of those 837, 209 were people with a disability, so about a quarter. Commissioners held private sessions with over 1,700 participants, 61% of whom were people with a disability speaking about their own experiences. Um, of the almost 8,000 submissions they received, 55% were from people with a disability and a further almost 30% were from family members of people who have a disability. Um, so essentially that gives you an idea of the level of participation of people with a disability and you would assume then that the other kind of people who were engaged in that process might have been um, you know, people in the community sector, the NGOs, the a group home, you know, providers, et cetera, those who aren't actually um, people living with a disability. So that gives you an idea. But there's also, of course, as Elle, you've, we've just referenced there, there's 12 volumes and it covers a wide range of what they found and what they heard. And, you know, some of the key um, parts of their terms of reference was to understand the degree of um, violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation that exists at the moment in Australia um, towards people with a disability. And in your crikey piece, you do talk about some of that and what was uncovered in the Disability Royal Commission. Could you give us a, an idea of the extent to which what was uncovered around people who have a disability and the types of exploitation, abuse and neglect that they're experiencing um, and the types of settings that they might be experiencing it in. Of course. And a strong content note just for this session. Yes. I won't talk about anything specific, but I'm going to talk about violence and abuse. Um, 
Look, the Royal Commission found what every other inquiry has found, but in far more detail, um, that violence against disabled people is endemic and it is everywhere. And I think, and that it particularly affects particular groups of disabled people. So I think I want to be really clear around that. Um, it happens to all of us, but it particularly happens to people with an intellectual disability, to First Nations people with disability, um, to people with psychosocial disability and autistic people, um, and particularly for folks who have all four. So. Um, it's a really important thing to understand that kind of intersectionality around First Nations people with disability is was a vital part of the Royal Commission um, and really important to understand. So for many people with disability, it happens in lots of places. So it happens at school, it happens in health settings, it happens in prison, it happens in the justice system, uh, it happens in public places. Um, they held a, a, a hearing uh, that heard from, um, that was, called for by the short statured community um, who really experienced kind of horrific abuse in public, you know, um, and one of the witnesses at that hearing gave evidence around all she wants to do is to be able to go up to the shops with no one yelling at her, no one abusing her. Mm. And that, yeah, broke my heart. Um, they heard a lot about things like guardianship and supported decision-making. Um, I'll never forget hearing from a young witness called Uli who talked about wanting to buy flowers for his partner and not being able to do that, having to write to the state trustee to get permission to, to buy flowers Gosh. for his partner. Um, we heard a lot from service providers. Um, so service providers who um, have people with disability in what's called service capture. So where um, we heard from one particular service provider where people with disability got everything from the same service provider. So um, their housing, their supports, their support coordination, they were working at the supported employment uh, by the same provider. Everything was from the provider. And so when they raised concerns about violence and abuse in the group home, for example, they were threatened with homelessness. And we heard a lot of that kind of um, institutional violence against people with disability, particularly people with an intellectual disability, around not being able to make decisions about their lives, about having no say about their home, about having no say about their supports, about being hurt at home uh, and not having any choice over who they live with um, and then not having any choice about what they do during the day or any say about that at all. Now, it feels like that is from the olden days, but this is what is happening now. So I want to be really clear this is the what is happening in the current system. Um, particularly for First Nations people with disability, we heard a lot about um, the enormous impact of the so-called child protection system, um, where First Nations families with disability go and seek support around disability for their kids uh, and then end up in the child protection system with kids being removed because they were seeking support for disability. And this doesn't happen to white families. And so I just want to be really clear around the structural nature of the violence, the exploitation, um, is really widespread and it is in the kind of systems that have catastrophic impacts. And First Nations organisations talked really strongly around the links between child removal, out-of-home care um, and juvenile justice and the adult prison system for First Nations people with disability. And that kind of polished pathway, as Catherine McAlpine talks about from Inclusion Australia, is different for First Nations people with disability than it is for white people with disability. For people with intellectual disability, 
that uh, segregated polished pathway goes from special schools straight into sheltered uh, workshops, employment, uh, working for $2.90 an hour, uh, and into group homes, and a life of segregation being away from the community. And that is one of the biggest risks for violence and abuse, being shut away and not being part of the community. Um, and that's where I think... Uh, you know, the key recommendations we were looking for were to tackle some of that segregation and to, um, you know, really make the strong link between people with disability having a different kind of life from non-disabled people and being separate from everybody else and shut away uh, and then terrible things happening. And th those two things are connected. Yeah, it's very institutionalised, isn't it? And a huge power imbalance that's magnified when these institutions have so much power um, that they can, you know, deploy. And there's also another aspect of this, which is intimate partner violence. Um, I know that in your piece you say that people with a disability are more than twice as likely to be hurt by their intimate partners. And it did also remind me of something that I see coming up a lot, especially around the disability support pension, which is that um, when someone has a partner, an intimate partner, and that partner, and they're living with them, um, and that partner has a, a salary, and they may not be on an amazing salary, by the way, they might just be on a you know a livable salary, but in many cases that really makes um, that person with a disability ineligible for the DSP or on a very low rate of the DSP if they, you know, depending on their, their partner's income. And it means that there is another kind of power imbalance, that they're financially reliant on their partner. And so that can also lead to, you know, an increase in the likelihood of coercive control, manipulation and, and violence. So I wonder, you know, does that aspect or did that aspect come up much, you know, how the welfare system has a role to play as well before we jump into segregation? No, is the answer. So um, on intimate partner violence, the other strong indicator around that is often people are do rely on their partners for the kind of care and support that they need as a disabled person. Um, and it can be very, very hard to leave if you're trying to find an accessible place, if you're mm. a wheelchair user, um, and if you rely on your partner to get you out of bed and have a shower, it can be very difficult to actually leave when violence is happening. So that is another key part. But yeah, it is the the welfare system, poverty. Um, people with disability are more likely to live in poverty. And we know that poverty is a factor in exploitation and abuse. And yeah. so it is very curious, uh, which is my, you know, diplomatic term, um, mm. not, not my strong suit, uh, where that, that has not been a stronger focus in the Royal Commission's report and that they haven't made significant recommendations around the disability support pension or job seeker or other income support. Uh, and it is really interesting that, you know, poverty and then also, you know, these um, contributors to violence inherent in the welfare system haven't yeah. actually been part of it. Um, and I think that's where I get uh, frustrated around the lack of engagement with those structural uh, mechanisms that do put people more at risk through the systems that we have to engage with as disabled people. And um, I've just written a new piece, this, you know, published this morning around restrictive practices, which is a ridiculously euphemistic term for legal violence against disabled people. And, you know, this, this lawful violence, these lawful structures that 
hurt disabled people um, don't happen to non-disabled people. And, and that's part of the Royal Commission's remit, or I was meant to be, um, to look at the specific things that happen to us that don't happen to non-disabled people. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I'm gobsmacked that they didn't include that, given that they kept remarking how broad their terms of reference were. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And and even, you know, you look at some of the Royal Commissioners, for example, Barbara Bennett, having over 20 years experience in the Commonwealth Public Service in the Department of Social Services and Human Services. I mean, she would have been an ideal commissioner to to bring that up, wouldn't she? Um, yeah. I want to talk now about how the commissioners came up with their findings and where they fell, because I think a lot of the um, coverage that did occur when the report came out was focused on the uh, disagreements. And, like, they are important disagreements because, as you say, it's about segregation, one of those key uh, areas where they've differed. But there's also a lot of areas that they've come together on, so we'll talk about those as well. But um, there were a number of commissioners. So we've got Ronald Sackville, who was a judge of the federal court, uh, Barbara Bennett, uh, Dr. Rhonda Galbally, Ms. Andrea Mason, Dr. Alistair McEwen, uh, the Honourable John Ryan and the Honourable Rosalind Atkinson. Um, so that gives people a sense that there's, you know, which wasn't just one, for example, like the RoboDebt um, Royal Commission, there are many commissioners. And so it means that I guess it might be harder to get, um, widespread or across the board unanimous support on all points if you've got, I don't know, six um, commissioners, not that I want to give them an excuse, but that then meant that we did get a lot of energy and focus on um, on where they kind of differed and the media liking to focus on conflict. But as I said, this segregation issue that you've mentioned there is clearly a key one and it is one that they very much diverged on. So, Let's start with that and then talk about the other areas that they have come together on and, and the other recommendations that they are making to government but also to um, the community sector and the society more broadly. Um, what did they say when it came to segregation and, and where did it fall? Because in that um, final report, uh, executive summary, it does show that there's kind of a grouping of royal commissioners having different approaches and different views to uh, what segregation is, what counts as segregation, what's an acceptable level of segregation and how it operates uh, in, the, in society for people with a disability. Mm. Look, I think the first thing I want to say is that none of the commissioners said that the current system is okay. Mm. So all of them said there needs to be very significant change and that the current situation isn't working for people with disability. So even the chair, um, Sackville, uh, did call for change. So even he who <laughs> wants the least change uh, did call for change. Um, but I think um, a lot of the coverage that has happened has been focused on um, special schools and the yeah. calls for change to segregated education. And the reason that those... Um, the reason that the majority of the commissioners called for significant change was that they understood that there is a clear link between starting your school in uh, starting school in a segregated environment and yeah starting school in a segregated environment and going on to a segregated life and the consequences of that for them. So um, and 
you know, the violence that happened and was talked about in special schools is significant and hugely problematic. So all of that was, you know, they heard a lot of evidence about it, um, but Commissioner Sackfield did talk about this in public hearings and has said this in a number of areas where he falls in line with the majority of the community, to be honest, where they genuinely think that there are some people mostly people with an intellectual disability who they say are too disabled to really be included. Now, I disagree profoundly um, and self, I have listened a lot to self-advocates, to people with an intellectual disability and their families. I have talked about them, about how they've made inclusion work. And I know that it is not only possible, but that all of the evidence says that it works really well for disabled kids, but also for non-disabled mm. kids. And that moving resources from a segregated environment into the mainstream would bring more resources into our schools and more resources into housing and more resources into employment. So I think that the way that I think some people, non-disabled people, again, have heard this has been that there is um, a plan to shut special schools tomorrow and that people like me want disabled kids to go into mainstream schools that are not set up for them. And that is not the case at all. So I think that um, all of the Royal Commission recommendations have been around making the kind of changes to mainstream services so that they actually fit disabled people. And you know, this has been the broader piece for the Royal Commission about saying that inclusion more generally of people with disability and seeing us as equal humans in, you know, equal citizens is going to be the key to stopping violence and abuse. Um, and they lay out different pathways to getting their Disability Rights Acts and, you know, disability ministers and a whole bunch of other stuff. But that core kind of belief that if we as disabled people are seen as uh, more inclusive, uh, more included, that's going to be really important. And it also means that young kids who aren't disabled actually get to know people who have a disability, like that it's not going to be seen as something different and unusual, that it kind of reinforces the social model, which is that everyone has differences and that we should be all able to embrace our differences and that, you know, everyone should be able to flourish together and that, you know, and segregation certainly doesn't help that situation at all. It just kind of reinforces the otherness um, of people with a disability. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if we're always seen as the other person and in the other place over there, mm. you know, then it's fine for the violence to continue because we're not actual people, if that makes sense. Like, you know, when I, I try and talk to people about the violence and abuse that people with disability experience and they genuinely either don't believe me um, or they kind of go, well, that's understandable because it's like, why wouldn't that be happening to those people? And they might not say it in that kind of language, mm. but I think it is quite clear that, you know, lots of people don't see people with disability as fully human. And I know that's a really confronting thing to say, but there's a long history of these kind of beliefs, like centuries of those beliefs. And so the idea that they wouldn't be still prevalent, that's how this abuse happens. Like it happens because people don't think that, we, you know, have the same rights as they do. No, no, certainly not. I, I understand what you mean. Um, and 
when we're looking at the report, I mean, I was interested to see that Commissioners Bennett, Galbally and McEwen, they, it says in there that they took the view that the deliberate and systemic separation of people based on disability constitutes segregation um, and that they consider segregating people based on disability to be incompatible with inclusion and believe it is unconscionable that segregation on the basis of disability remains a policy default in Australia in the 21st century. So that's a very definitive position that they're holding in comparison to the others. Um, can we talk about the group home issue as well and some of the other areas where segregation comes up? Um, because as we just talked about with schools, no one, as you point out, is suggesting that it happens tomorrow. In fact, some people have criticised um, the Commission for making that transition plan too long, too drawn out, because it's too far away and it's not going to uh, help children now or even tomorrow. Uh, but could you take us through these other settings as well that have come up um, that were, a, you know, a core focus? Yeah, so the other part was uh, group homes. So um, the majority of commissioners called, the half of the commissioners called for closure within 15 years uh, and the move away from those kind of settings. So group home is where people with disability and overwhelmingly people with an intellectual disability uh, live with other people with disability where they have no say over who they live with most of the time. Um, and often it can be in settings with four, five, six, even 10 people living together. Um, and uh, really, um, they are old fashioned styles of homes. They are where lots of problems happen. And it is really important that we have a transition away from the current system. They were meant to be a transition between institutions and the community. And what's happened is people have moved into group homes and got stuck there. Mm. Um, and within the NDIS, you know, the funding settings exist now to have them um, just continue indefinitely. They are the majority of, uh, you know, they it cost, kind of cost about $11 billion last year um, through the NDIS, um, through what's called Supported Independent Living, which funds them and supported dis uh, specialist disability accommodation. Uh, and so we're kind of embedding the structures and the systems now for group homes to continue indefinitely. So people with an intellectual disability have just as much right to live independently as I do. And I don't understand why I get to live in my own house and they don't have to get to live in exactly the way they want to, you know? So um, I don't understand why we say that only some people with, with, you know, in our community don't get those kind of choices and decisions. So I think it's something that we need to have a look at and be honest about why, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, people in the community say all sorts of things about people with intellectual disability and, you know, continue to expect that they don't have a real part in the community, which I just find incredibly hurtful and, you know, self-advocates tell me it is incredibly hurtful and uh, disrespectful for, to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elle, to close off this topic before we just jump quickly into COVID, I wanted to just reference some of those other recommendations, including a Disability Rights Act, a complaints mechanism, um, a federal government portfolio for disability with a dedicated minister, which you mentioned there. Like, what are your thoughts on some of those more overarching recommendations that they made relating to government? Do you think they're going to make a, a significant change if they are adopted? 
Yeah, look, I, I think it's there's some of the recommendations that a lot of us, a lot of the disability representative organisations and a lot of us have called for, not just through the Royal Commission, but say through the NDIS review, which is due to report in a couple of weeks. Um, there is no federal overarching body or minister that has responsibility for all people with disability. So Minister Shorten has responsibility for the NDIS uh, and Minister Richworth has responsible for responsibility for social services, but for people with disability who are not income support and, you know, engaging with different government systems and Australia's disability strategy, which is meant to be our strategic policy document, etc., there isn't any central point of responsibility to uh, take action on all of the other things that we need to do to make sure that we're included. So, um, you know, meeting our transport standards, which we're 20 years overdue for meeting, um, meeting accessible housing standards, you know, fixing employment so we stop being discriminated against at work. We can just try to get um, help so we can get a job and not just have mutual obligations enforced upon us. So, um, like fixing some of those systems, there isn't a central point of responsibility across government. So, yes, I do think that that is a good idea and a good recommendation. Um, I think the Disability Rights Act could be amazing, but there's also a process going on around uh, human rights framework and so how those two things would work together, I'm not quite sure about yet, uh, or whether there's appetite at a federal level to do either of those things. So, um, and I think with the review coming out in a few weeks, there will be quite a lot of overlapping recommendations mm -hmm. around the broader inclusion pieces that need to be done for people with disability. It's something that Bruce Bonahady has talked about quite a lot. For example, um, he's mentioned foundational supports uh, as part of uh, what needs to be done um, to include all people with disability. And it is the same conversation that we're having out of the Royal Commission. Um, you know, the Actuaries Institute put out a report yesterday <laughs> called Not a Level Playing Field, and they've kind of reviewed all of the data about exclusion uh, for disabled people and, and kind of were astonished to find uh, how bad things are for us in every area. Like, this is not just happening in one area, it's every area, and it's not moving. So mm. the employment statistics around people with disability have been the same for three decades, and they're not shifting. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, and we're in an environment now where there's should not, you know, there should be huge opportunities for people with disability. It's not shifting. And so, you know, the problem is not with us. The problem is with attitudes towards disabled people in Australia. And we need to actually be honest about those and think about, you know, so for for us in the community, how many of us organize events and make sure they're accessible? How many of us organise, you know, social events and social functions and make sure they're accessible to our disabled friends? How many of us have disabled friends? You know, how many yeah. of us make sure that our workplace is hiring disabled people? Like, there's lots of things all of us can do. Um, but I often talk to people and they just go, it never occurred to me. And I'm like, I'm aware, you know, mm. I'm aware. Mm. And, you know, there's what came up in the report as well is the differences between people who have a very um, overt disability, something that's very visible to society versus some that have an invisible disability and the different types of challenges that both face, you know, in those different settings like employment and people with an invisible disability will often have to hide their disability or try to, um, it, it often doesn't last very long, um, you know, to try and maintain a, an equal level playing field and, and not be discriminated against, whereas some people, you know, have a very visible one, don't have that choice and they don't have that ability. Um, but they, you know, they're still struggling with a lot of things. And I think our societal 
image of what a disabled person is is also quite, um, you know, unrealistic or narrow. And that's part of the, I guess, the issue with the NDIS as well is, you know, as the, everyone said, it wasn't set up for everyone, but it does need to be more inclusive um, of people with a whole range of impairments. And it seems to be at the moment, you know, not so. But anyway, we'll leave, we'll park that for when the NDIS review comes out. Um, Elle, you mentioned their inclusion at events and, and these kind of things. And it reminds me, of course, of COVID. And we've got... Um, issues now, major issues now with people who have a disability, people with a chronic illness, people who are either immune compromised or immune suppressed, who now can't access healthcare safely. They're avoiding going to hospital. They're avoiding getting MRI scans where they have to take their masks off. They're, you know, trying to protect themselves in every way they can. They're not going out and doing the fun things they used to enjoy, like going to the cinema or having um, dinner inside a restaurant. They have to make sure they sit outside. There's a lot of compromises that people with a disability or a chronic illness are making at the moment um, to even be able to engage minimally in society. And that was very different to what life was like during the you know, lockdowns and, and like the height of the pandemic when there were no vaccines. Can you take us through just briefly what people are facing now with a disability now that really the mitigations that did exist have been lifted and especially in these other settings like hospital settings but of course more broadly as well at universities out and about in the public you know going to supermarkets I think this is something that most average able-bodied people may not appreciate is that there's this huge amount of exclusion that's going on um, and a, a real difficulty of people being able to engage and do the things they want to do. Yeah, you just described part of my life there, Amy. So, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, look, to be honest, it is really hard. I'm finding this one of the harder pieces, parts of the pandemic. Um, I mean, it's all been pretty shit, um, technical term, but uh, this this particular time I'm finding very difficult. So the exclusion that I'm feeling is uh, large, but also in a practical sense, it is getting harder to make decisions. So yeah. um, the lack of information, um, you know, we're encouraged by government, those of us like me who are immunosuppressed and um, I have heart issues and a whole bunch of other fun things that put me at very significant risk if I get COVID. I told someone the other day I had never had COVID and they were genuinely gobsmacked. And I'm like, is that an unusual thing to not have had COVID now? I guess mm. so. Um, I've never had it either. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I feel like it's a little club of those of yeah. us who are still taking precautions. Um, yeah but also who are making significant sacrifices mm. to stay safe. So my mum's really sick and is in Melbourne. And so I have been, I have done a little bit of traveling uh, over the last uh, year and come down to see her um, and I'll be doing a little bit more, but I make decisions around, <laughs> you mentioned the sewage wastewater. That's yeah. what I, that's what I use now. Mm. I look at hospitalizations. I try and, you know, surf the wave at the low point so that I can wear my full blown respirator on the plane and do all of the things to try and stay as safe as I can. 
take measured risks, you know, eat outside. I don't eat inside in restaurants. I'm very cautious about what I do. Um, the last thing I would want to do is make my mum sick, you know, for example, um, as much as I don't want to die, it's also don't want to kill anyone either. Uh, but I think that that is, uh, uh, you know, really difficult. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I have found the hardest has been disability events that are now inaccessible for me. Yeah. And, you know, being, um, having even friends and in the disability movement say that they cannot provide access for me um, with co- in a COVID safe way and that I just have been excluded from disability related events, from uh, being part of things. And I find that incredibly hurtful and just, um, it, yeah, I found that incredibly difficult. And I think that, um, most disabled people, lots of disabled people are not as high risk as me and that is totally fine. And, you know, because I have to say it every time, I do not want everybody to go back into lockdown. Oh, my God. So no, that's not what uh, anyone's calling no, for, is it? No, but it becomes very difficult to have a nuanced conversation mm. about how COVID safety is now an access issue for so many of us. Yep. And I've just been reading this morning or yesterday about an academic at a at Sydney University who's basically been sacked yes, because they, they would not accommodate his COVID needs. And he has similar kind of autoimmune issues to me um, and is at very high risk. And he's had multiple specialists say, no, that's a terrible idea. Mm. And the university's just gone bad luck. Now that, I just find astonishing. Like mm. I really am gobsmacked that we are now in the situation that disabled people are expected to, to be lose their employment to try and not die. Like I just yeah. find that that is, you know, the, the sort of situation that we're in. And for those of us who are still at risk, like um, to be clear, like I regularly every couple of months I talk to my doctors, I talk to my specialists and I say, is it still as bad for me? Like, have things got better? And things have got better. Like I've had all of the vaccines. I'm so grateful to that. The antivirals have been a change maker and they've absolutely taken the risk from catastrophic to just pretty damn awful. But I don't want to go to ICU. I do not want to get any sicker than I already am. And my heart is in a pretty dicey state and I don't want to make it any worse than it already is. So, you know, the risks for me are real and I check them regularly <laughs> to make sure. And every single time the doctors go, yeah, you're going to have to stay being really cautious. You can't go to the football. You can't do this. You can't mm. do, you can't be in big crowds of people. You can't go to conferences. You can't do that stuff. Like, you know, and I try and have these conversations about, you know, for my job, I've got to go to Canberra and have meetings with people. And I'm like, right, well, okay, I'll wear a mask. And if we're going to have to sit in a small room, that I really, can we meet outside somewhere? And, you know, trying to have conversations with people about how to do that. And it's becoming harder and harder. And I yeah. think that's where I have a lot of privilege. I have money, you know, I can afford deliveries. I can do all of those things. I can work from home. I have an enormous amount of privilege, but there are lots of people who are relying on income support, who can't get things delivered, who are forced to go out, who are trying to do that. Where do they afford N95 masks? Where do they afford, you know, rat tests? How do they do all of that stuff and access medical care, as you say? So, um, I had to go and get an MRI fairly recently and, you know, and the techs all put masks in, everyone was masked, thankfully. Um, and, you know, so that was, it was okay-ish, but I had to be in a room for an hour without a mask on mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that stuff is anxiety inducing and, you know, then I spend the next three days going, have I got COVID, you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
lots of people are in those situations and there's no movement, there's no move to keep us safe and there's no end in sight. And I think that's where I'm finding, you know, I really hoped by the end of this year that there would be an end in sight and there would be an opportunity to make plans and to do stuff. And, you know, I love my little house in the country, but, oh boy, I'm a little tired of being in these four walls and, very keen to see my friends more and, you know, go to the footy and go and see a band, yeah. and go, go to the movies. So um, do the kinds of things that uh, I, that are still not safe for me to do. Um, I don't know when that's going to change. And I worry so much that the lessons from COVID didn't get learned, you know, where health departments didn't just forgot that we exist, uh, existed. The vaccine rollouts were just shifted away from disabled people without telling anyone uh, all of the things that happened during COVID that none of that's been learned terribly well. I mean, mm. one of the recommendations in the Royal Commission is that the health department has a disability um, marker, if you like, like that there's a, some kind of marker in their data sets that the person has disability. Um, in the UK, they have that in their in National Health Service and that's how they knew that 60% of people who died in the first waves of COVID were disabled people. Um, but here in Australia, we have no idea. Like there is no records, there's no data. And so it became very difficult to talk about the scale of the problems and the issues when there was little data. So yeah. Um, I'm hoping there will be some change, but, you know, I think the pandemic has been a profoundly traumatic experience for so many people. And I don't know whether we've grappled with that as such. And, um, you know, my sister lives in Melbourne and was a nurse in the aged care homes down there during lockdowns. And so I'm not going to ever lecture Melbourne people about lockdowns, but I think that for us all to grapple with the trauma of what happened during the pandemic and that for so many of us, it was a terrible, terrible time. So I think talking about it brings back those memories for people and the people don't want to talk about it. And I get that. I really do. But it's leaving all of us still dealing with the pandemic in a very difficult position. Um, and just kind of hear, like I said in a meeting the other day, something about, Oh, yeah, I'm still avoiding COVID. People were genuinely gobsmacked. Like mm. genuinely, they hadn't thought about it for six months. Like they're just out of their brains. And uh, I think it's a really um, interesting how people, you know, how humans' brains works and, and how people do want to forget the trauma. And I get that completely. Like there were lots of things that happened during the pandemic that were really, really hard. And that for so many people, lots of things changed. And lots of things were, you know, difficult in a way that disabled people understand, you know, very, very well. Um, but for lots of us, yeah, it's still like that. And also the risk obviously is greater for people who already have a disability or a chronic illness. But even for people who don't, um, there is a risk. Every time you get COVID, you could get long COVID. 65 million people around the world have acquired long COVID. So this is still a risk for every person in the whole of society, which is why I think there is room for people to be more accommodating because not only are they protecting other people, they are in fact also protecting themselves, whether they realise their own personal risk or not. Um, and that, I guess, is the point of government is that they're meant to be stepping up and educating people, but they, in fact, also want to put their head in the sand, which is very, very frustrating. 
Um, Elle, we'll have to leave it there, but I'm so grateful to you for taking us through these areas in such detail and and really with a lot of nuance and care. It's been fascinating to hear from you. And I've put the links up to the pieces that we've talked about on the Triple R Uncommon Sense page. If people want to read Elle's writing, which I hope they do. Um, and I really am so appreciative of your time today, Elle. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. I've just been talking with Elle Gibbs, who is a writer, disability advocate and editor of bluntshovels.au, and we've just been talking about the Disability Royal Commission's final report and the effect of COVID-19 and the pandemic on people with a disability and a chronic illness here in Australia and around the world, really. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.